Hi, thank you for tuning in to the Finding Harmony podcast with me, your host, Harmony Slater. Hi, welcome to the Finding Harmony podcast. I'm so excited you're here today. We have just the most interesting person that we're interviewing. Our guest today is Andrew Epler. And maybe many of you uh, are not familiar with him. He is a teacher, though, who has spent a lot of time in Mysore, not practicing with Sri K. Patabi Joyce or Sharat Joyce, but rather practicing with BNS Iyengar, who was also a student of Krishnamacharya and a student of Patabi Joyce. And so Andrew developed a very devoted relationship to his teacher, BNS Iyengar, and uh, continued to, um, you know, learn and study and practice yoga. He had an interesting childhood. Uh, one of his first teachers was Cliff Barber, who uh, lived in Crete, in Greece, and uh, passed away, unfortunately, a couple of months ago. But he started practicing yoga as a 14-year-old and then started traveling the world with his father and by himself, uh, practicing yoga and doing magic tricks. He's also a magician. So you're just going to absolutely love this story. There's so many little gems of wisdom uh, dropped throughout, you know, the discipline and the yoga practices, you know, change our minds and our hearts from the inside and it changes uh, the outcome of our lives uh, probably even more strongly than any material circumstances around us and Andrew uh, believes this and he has like the first hand example of how powerful these practices can be protecting him as he was traveling the world living out of a suitcase sometimes with no shoes just a top hat doing magic on the street practicing and teaching yoga giving body work um, he's lived quite an interesting life um, and he also created a documentary called the Mysore Yoga Traditions which you might want to check out and look into it's you can purchase it online and download it and watch it for yourself it's very interesting we talk a lot about how he made this documentary and there is a special Mysore yoga conference that will also be held online that he is hosting uh, in 2022 from February 8th to 18th so it's a 10-day conference uh, all online and there's many many uh, amazing uh powerful senior teachers, um, you know, philosophers, philosophy professors, many of the people that you've listened to on this podcast, people we've studied with in Mysore, India, he is bringing together to teach and to instruct and to give lectures online uh, during this 10-day period from February 8th to 18th. So you can find out all the information in the show notes and on my website. Um, but Andrew is just a very interesting and uh, charismatic and dynamic person. And I think you're going to love listening to all of his stories. Uh, very well traveled. And I hope that you will take the time to join the Mysore Yoga Conference in February. Uh, you can register now. 
and check out his Mysore Yoga Traditions documentary as well, which is really, really interesting. And I just wish you all a very happy holiday season. I hope that you're celebrating with friends and family and just enjoying um, the comfort of your home and all of the, the wonderful blessings that the holidays bring. I hope it's, it is blessing your lives and you're just, you know, able to bask in some time of rest and recovery and love and, um, you know, comfort and, and just enjoy this period that comes at the end of the year, uh, you know, before before things start up again, before things get too busy, too chaotic. And and I encourage you just to really take some time to uh, consciously think about what you'd like to create in the coming year, where you'd like to put your energy and invest your resources, whether it be time, whether it be money, whether it be um, learning, intelligence, um, your heart, your compassion, what you'd like to give back to, what you'd like to build, what you'd like to create, um, just, you know, how you want to consciously create the next year uh, before we get going. So I wish you all the best. Um, Love from Russell and I to all of you. And I hope that you just uh, love this interview as much as we enjoyed uh, speaking with Andrew. And let's get to it. Hi, welcome to the Finding Harmony podcast. I'm Harmony and I'm here with Russell Case. I just want everyone to know that I shaved for today's episode. <laughs> they appreciate the effort. It's, I, I'm known for my meticulous work. Yes, yeah. and we are joined today by our special guest star, Andrew Epler. Hi, Andrew. How are you? Hi, Harmony. I'm very happy to be here with you today. Well, we're grateful that you could find the time to fit us in. Thanks for having me. <laughs> it's. Uh, I was just saying to Andrew before we got on that uh, really what we like to do is we like to showcase per- the stories from around our community, and and every person's story is is part and parcel of crisis and resolution, and so that's what makes these makes these interviews so interesting to me is is that they're um, they really get profoundly down to why people make the decisions that they do and what what impacts them and how they end up here. And so with that in mind, uh, Andrew is is another uh, fantastic story in our community that maybe um, not everyone in, um, say, the Orthodox Ashtanga Yoga click of Gokulam might be aware of, but it's, it's incredibly interesting all the same. And I think he's also a uh, a fellow that has profoundly broadened our knowledge of the circle of yoga, mm-hmm. uh, especially within Mysore. I, if you allow me, Andrew, I have a little intro for you. Go for it. <laughs> so, Andrew has studied and practiced Ashtanga yoga on a daily basis for over 35 years. Uh, for many of them, Andrew has also studied magic and anything that seems to be impossible. He's known as the Yogi Magician. Andrew currently manages the Shtanga Yoga Studio in, near Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, uh, which he started in 1999. His documentary on the history of yoga in Mysore, The Mysore Yoga Traditions, is a light into the darkness of ignorance. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> are you. Are you in Oklahoma now? I am. Okay. And 
I looked on the map. It looked like it was like a really long way away from anywhere. It is. We um, we recently moved our yoga shala out to my family property and renovated a church that my father began building about 10 or 15 years ago. And, you know, he passed away without completing it. And during the COVID era, I I found it difficult in, in the city. And I was paying rent for a large yoga shala where I'd been for many, many years. And so we decided to make a change and move out to the forest. We, we now have Magic Forest Center. And we're, we're just not doing the daily classes that we did for so many years. We're focusing more on retreats and trainings and things of this nature. Beautiful. It's always been kind of a dream of mine to have a, a church to practice in. I always liked that idea. I thought it was so nice. I, I, Sharon Moon used to teach out of a church yeah. in Austin. Good energy. We we just watched. Um, I didn't have this question on the question list that I emailed to you. I apologize, but uh, we just watched a documentary last week with your grandmother, who is ninety three. Harmony. Oh, my grandmother. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was Andrew's grandmother. No. For a second. <laughs> Do you remember we watched? Um, we watched the a Dust Bowl documentary. Yeah, we did. We watched a whole documentary on the Dust Bowl. And it's it seems like um, that you, within that episode, within that documentary, there was a whole scene on on how at one point the citizens of Oklahoma decided en masse to kill all of the rabbits, which was an which was horrifying. But it seems like it moved to Calgary because when your parents were kids, there were no giant rabbits. I think they're called hares. Yeah, there are no giant rabbits. rabbits in in Calgary, but they all moved north from Oklahoma. Do you have any any stories about that time? Do you did your family was they were they hit by the dust bowl at all? Um, I don't know much about the rabbit killing business. Um, <laughs> I hunted some rabbits as a as a young kid, uh, but I, I think what people know the most internationally about Oklahoma is you know sort of like the grapes of wrath and right. the dust bowl era and the land run of course, uh, the Sooners, et cetera. Um, and of course, the the musical Oklahoma, where the wind goes sweeping across the plains. I mean, I think that especially European people, that's maybe the few bits of, of information that they would associate with Oklahoma. Um, it was, of course, the last state in the lower 48 uh, to become a state. And it was the place that all of the Red Indians were driven to and the place where the last uh, fights took place and some some real atrocities actually with the Red Indians. And mm-hmm. um, many people here, including myself, have American Indian ancestry. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, for many years, Oklahoma was sort of a place to escape from for me because mm-hmm. I began traveling at an early age and, and I, I came back after a long travel and thought, oh my God, where, where is this weird place? I mustn't get stuck here. And, uh, right. you know, over the years, I've come to appreciate Oklahoma more. And um, one of the advantages that it has is that it, it is way out in the middle of nowhere. And there's, there's nothing to distract you from your yoga practice. <laughs> um, well, there are always things to distract us, of course. But 
some very good medical facilities are here. Some very good research has taken place here. Um, Oklahoma is whatever what we make it, I suppose. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, like everywhere in the world, really, right? <laughs> Bring your samskaras with you everywhere you go. You can be <laughs> in the most amazing place and be miserable, or you can be in Oklahoma and be totally happy <laughs> if you want. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> we we had uh, Sister Shri on the show. Do you do you remember her from New York, the magician? I don't actually know who that is. Okay, musician. The musician. That's what I said. You said magician. I didn't. You did. I did. I said musician. <laughs> so Sister Shri uh, Regina French. Um, she was raised in Oklahoma, um, and she when she, we, when she came on the show, she wanted us to make sure to refer to the 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 native word for for Oklahoma before it was became a state and that was Sequoia, which was just awesome to hear. I wanted to know if that if that resonated with you at all. Well, Sequoia was a very famous Cherokee, uh, perhaps chief, but he he created the Cherokee alphabet. Oh, oh wow! Goodness, and, yeah. That, that's all I really know about the, the name Sequoia. Um, but the Cherokees, of course, were one of the five civilized tribes that were uh, replaced here, and um, and they're still very prevalent here and have a large reservation. They wow. uh, they do casinos and cigarettes. That's yeah, <laughs> same. <laughs> the, yeah, <laughs> same here. We we just had yesterday our uh, first ever national holiday called Truth and Reconciliation Day in Canada. In Canada, yeah. And so all the kids had the day off school, and it was a day to recognize um, the and atrocities. To try and reconcile mm. some of the atrocities that happened with our Native American population and, and, you know, the, I guess, immigrants from Britain and France who came to Canada. So, Mm. and a lot of the uh, children were put into um, schools, you know, Catholic schools or boarding schools. and To be re-educated. Yeah. Many of them died there in the schools. So it was, um, yeah, it was a really meaningful day actually yesterday, kind of a uh, epic first for our country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My my sister is a historian, a professor of history, and writes a lot on nineteenth century women's history. And I know from her work that Oklahoma was kind of a center for poor white, uneducated agricultural people, and we had things like the Green Corn Rebellion, and we had a lot of very radical socialist kinds of thinking. There were communists in Oklahoma uh, in around the early 1900s. And um, it's kind of a wild place. It's, uh, you know, the redneck culture is, is certainly, for lack of a better word, it, it, it's, it's strong here. And one of the things about Redneck culture, I find. I've, to me, rednecks exist in every country and every culture. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah. You can find them in Gokulam, that's for sure. You know, like, like these uh, very genuine people. And, and that's one of the things I love about being in Oklahoma. Um, people are open and, and they're mm-hmm. kind, mostly. Mm-hmm. 
very kind. And um, it's a conservative place. It's of the Bible Belt. It's Republican. It's, you know, there are lots of things that I may not agree with politically or uh, religious philosophy. You know, I, I do come from a family full of Nazarene ministers. And, and I, um, so there are lots of maybe differences that I, I have with the, the sort of status quo culture here. But I do find people to be very genuine. And um, a lot of those differences melt away when we actually just start speaking together as people. And um, uh, Oklahoma's taught me a lot, actually, about humanity. Yeah, that's beautiful. You mentioned Nazarene ministers. I, I read in, um, a biography about you, about your dad, Ray, who passed, mm-hmm. I'm sorry to say, that he had started teaching you uh, or introduced you to yoga when you were 14. Was he a minister as well? Was he a man of the cloth? He, he was, yeah. That seems perf- That seems really out there for him to also be teaching you yoga. Can you talk? Tell well, us about that. My my dad was the black sheep of the, his family, and uh, both families were extremely upset when my parents got together. And uh, my my father hitchhiked to California when he was about I don't know eighteen or nineteen, and went to Haight Ashbury and took LSD and grew his hair out and and was I, I did all those things to that powder culture and of course his family was very upset about all this mm-hmm. he, he was the first as far as we know the first man to turn up in Oklahoma with long hair he he, he came back the first with his hair grown out and it was absolutely scandalous in in the late 60s to have long hair when you were yeah. in this place. And um, so he he had to sort of make his own way. But but he felt a strong sense of a need to to be reconciled with his predecessors. And and he actually was a very spiritual person. But he, he was exposed to I Ching and yoga philosophy and oriental occultism and different ideas like that, vegetarianism, etc. And so he much of his life's work was about sort of creating what he called universal spirituality. My my father was very interested in spirituality from all different cultures. Mm-hmm. And and very fascinated with American Indian spirituality, with Eastern uh, spirituality, and he was always trying to find the common denominator with Christianity. And um, mm. that's be- that's really beautiful. Um, what a like incredible family to kind of be born into. Is he sounds like a real seeker, and that maybe lit the fire for you also. It did. It did. He he was, um, you know, we used to run every day together, five miles, and he, he started me uh, staring at a candle and counting a hundred breaths when I was about 12, 11 or 12. Wow. And, and I, somehow he made discipline seem cool to me. Mm. <laughs> nice. And he never pushed me to do it. He, I just loved to spend time around him and, and he was 
you know, somebody that I really looked up to. So it, it, it happened very naturally. And, you know, I have kids of my own that are, you know, 14 and 24 and 11. And it's not easy to get a kid to do yoga. I can tell you. (laughs) Yeah. My son has no, no real interest at all. He's excellent at it. (laughs) Yeah. The, the closest I went into the dentist office, I dropped him off there to yesterday because he had to get a tooth pulled. And uh, and so he went in first because I had to park the car and I walked in and uh, he was sitting on the floor in Lotus. And I walked in and looked at the desk and and they looked at me and I said, this one belongs to me. <laughs> and they said, oh, we offered him a chair, but he said he'd rather sit on the floor. And I was like, okay, <laughs> this is new. <laughs> and that's after after the surgery? No, before. Was before yeah, he, was, he, was he was really he was getting in the zone, for, you know, he was gearing he up. He knew what the... he was up for. He was up for a <laughs> shot. And he doesn't like shots, so he was preparing himself. That's amazing. <laughs> and was, yeah, that, was that what it was like for you? Did your dad teach yoga that way like you're gonna go get a shot you had to prepare yourself for um not necessarily but i i would just comment that even though our kids may really resist some of the things that we, we like to do when when it's important and when they're faced with challenges in life they really do look back at the examples that we set for them and so even though it might just be dad's stupid yoga thing, when it really counts, it's there for them. And and when they're presented with challenges in their lives, they remember what you used to do. And, and so they're always watching, even when we think they're not. And that's yeah. why I think that yoga practice and sadhana, even though it can be very difficult in family life, it has a profound effect on our kids. And, and mm-hmm. that's one of the great reasons for cultivating ourselves and being the best that we can on all fronts. Mm-hmm. Because the next generation is watching much more closely than we think that they are. Yeah. And they yeah. see how we are. Yeah. Yeah. It's profound, actually, when you think about how they're absorbing things and we don't even know what they're absorbing and and how that will then affect them later in life. It's incredible. They see it when we're weak, too. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) exactly. I'm I've I've also heard that uh, your father, uh, Mr. Epler, uh, introduced you to Cliff Barber. Is that can you say that? Would that be accurate to say? Absolutely. The, t- the two of you. Me when, when I was two years old for the first time. Oh, wow. Oh. And so my father and Cliff went back many, many years and, and had a long history together as young men. And Cliff is a bit older than my father. But he came to visit our our home in Oklahoma when I was 14 years old. And he taught my father and I the primary series uh, together. We actually started learning yoga together. And it was because of my dad's influence that I stayed with it. Um, I, I was 14 and I thought that maybe I could levitate if I would do this yoga stuff. So I, I was along for the ride. Cliff was a very impressive and articulate man. 
And I, I just naturally was drawn to him. I wanted to be like him in some sense. And um, so he, he had a very impactful personality, but he left after two or three months, I believe. And my father and I continued to practice primary every day for the next three years until I started to travel. So it, it was very much Cliff who introduced us to yoga, who brought yoga to this part of the country. And wow. um, certainly there, there were no yoga studios when I started learning yoga. And, and Of course. Um, there, there were no teacher trainings. There, there were, yoga wasn't cool at all. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Especially in Oklahoma. <laughs> if, if you don't mind me asking, how, uh, what year was that in 19, in, when you were 14? 84. Maybe I've got it wrong. Maybe it was 85 that, that he came. But, okay. Uh, okay. Amazing. Yeah. Wow. Did you go and visit him in Crete? I did many times. And um, my first trip out of Oklahoma, I was 17 and I went to Hawaii and met with Cliff. And that's, that's where I was introduced to Danny Paradise, who's another great friend and lifelong teacher of mine. And, and Cliff and Danny, of course, went way back. And um, that was kind of a big step for me. I I had been doing yoga for three years with my dad at home, and I didn't necessarily understand yoga. But when I when I went to Hawaii and I met Cliff and I met all the people around Cliff, I, I came to see what a community uh, there was around yoga and and what a, what a positive regard so many people had for it. And a lot of doors opened for me as, as a young person through the yoga community in Hawaii. And it really inspired me to stick with it and to, to take it on somewhat as, as more of a path. So um, it's true that I, I got into it early and, and that I stayed with it. But I think that I can I really just thank my teachers and my father for that and the, the good influences that I was exposed to. And I, I might very easily have drifted off in some other direction if it weren't for the, uh, the, the good influence of my, my family and my teachers. I, I was, as we all were, we were all kind of stricken to hear that Cliff had passed away recently. Um, I, I wondered to know what what his way of life might have might have meant to you that you know that he had uh become a renunciate that he had you know lived in a cave was barefoot he lived by a river in a hut something like that <laughs> yeah and so uh, i just wanted to know what what that uh what in that might have <laughs> what that might have meant to you that someone would choose to live that way and did you think about living that way yourself it meant a great deal to me um and I think that, you know, Cliff was a renunciate. And this is a lifestyle that's not very well understood in any culture, certainly not American culture. Um, Cliff was fearless. And he, you know, he threw away his shoes uh, and... Actually, as the story goes, Cliff 
he 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 took LSD for the first time back in the seventies and um, or sixties, and and my father actually was the one who gave it to him. <laughs> and Amazing. He, he sold all of his possessions. He left his boat somewhere down in Mexico. And he took all the money that he had and rented a house in Maui for six months. And he took all the money he had left over and put it in a bowl in the middle of the table. And he invited four friends to live with him, one of which was my father. And they spent that six months studying Eastern philosophy. And when the money ran out, and the rent ran out. Cliff did, in fact, move into a cave in Maui. Wow. And he, he spent a number of years there. Uh, well, a number of months, actually. And uh, various things happened. Without getting deeply into his life story, he did, of course, as you know, settle in Crete because he wanted to study mathematics, and especially Greek mathematics. And he wanted to study the stars from the same place as Plato and Aristotle and and some of the Greek philosophers. So he was very much into geometry and mathematics. And for me, Cliff's lifestyle as a renunciate was confrontational uh, to, to a degree. I never exactly wanted to do that because I, I I liked to have a girlfriend and I, I mm-hmm. and I had kids and and I felt um, drawn to be a member of society. Mm-hmm. But a renunciate, you know, they they don't have a, a, a well, isn't there an expression in Britain, the I'm a I'm a this, I'm a that, I'm a you know, like if yeah, you ask yeah. someone what do you do, we all have a, a carefully concocted answer to that. I, I'm I'm a yoga teacher. I own a yoga studio. Uh, I'm a doctor. I'm a mother. I'm I'm a I'm a lawyer or whatever. You know, we have a front that we pre- that we present ourselves to the world through. Mm-hmm. And a renunciate doesn't have that. They're, mm-hmm. they're like, I have no shoes. I have no money. I'm here. Deal with it. And Cliff was like that. And he was fierce in his discipline and in his worldview. And, you know, he lived his life courageously. And he would tell anybody to take a hike. He would say exactly what he thought at any given time. He didn't care if you had money or you were supporting him or if you were somehow helpful to him. He he absolutely wouldn't put up with anything. And... You know, most of us spend our lives preparing for old age. We have pensions. We have a flat with no stairs. We we have it sort of planned out how we're going to be taken care of in our old age. And he didn't have none of that. Mm -hmm. He he faced old age and death with nothing, Mm -hmm. laying in the rocks uh, in a remote river valley in, in Crete. And yet... He never complained. He was never worried. And somehow, because of his great character and, and the, the bond that he had with the people he taught, his students, mm-hmm. he was taken care of and surrounded by people who cared a great deal for him right to the end. 
and um, I have great admiration and and um, appreciation for the people who spent those last years with him and and took care of him when he needed to be taken care of. His life turned out just wonderfully. He passed away at the age of 90. He didn't exactly get snatched away in his youth or anything. Um, And he's an inspiration. He's a very, very courageous person who really insisted on living life on his own terms. And so for me, that that's just a point of reference that I'll never forget. And um, that you, you don't actually have to do anything that other people think you should do. You just have to really be yourself. And uh, he's a great icon for that in, in, my, in my life. And one thing about renunciates, when, when a person doesn't have the front that they present to the world, when they've shed all of that and they're just there, having renounced material life, got no job, got no money, got no particular anything, just here I am. The whole world is the body of God. We're sitting here together. Hello. And well, that when people live like that, they can see very, very clearly the pretense and the fakeness of other people's sort of front that they present. And usually if you go to see a renunciate like Cliff, in just a matter of time, they start pointing out to you how fake you are. Mm. And, it's really, <laughs> and it's really humiliating, but boy, is it good for you. <laughs> mm-hmm. so I, yeah, uh, wow. I learned a great deal from Cliff and um, he, I'm very proud that I, I got to spend the time that I did with him. Yeah. Yeah. That's precious. Well, that I, I, that reminds we had, Harmony and I watched your, your documentary recently, and it reminds us of, of seeing um, uh, Cave Swami um, from Mysore, from Chamundi Hill. And we, Harmony and I have both spent a lot of time with him. I, I used to give him back massages in his back, it was in his second cave where he had the CNN on. The real cave. The real cave where he had the <laughs> CNN on at all times and he had the news. And I would go in there and rub his back. And he, but I was just, it was so lovely to see him in in your uh, in your documentary because he was another fellow that could do that, could just point out pretense because he, he was a renunciate and given up all things. Except CNN. And sugar. And I think chai. he wouldn't have minded <laughs> if it was taken. <laughs> what was your experience like of interviewing him? And did you go and see him frequently when you were in Mysore, Andrew? I had seen him a few times, um, but it 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 was great. You know, every all of the scholars that we interviewed were quite different, and. In, in the case of Cave Swami, there was no real asking him questions because I came with a list of questions. And, but part of the art of interviewing people like that is that you got to let them roll. You, you just got to let them say what they have to say. You can't interrupt and try to herd them around. You just have to accept what you get and give them the opportunity to really get going and and bring up what what they have to say so he just you know he rambled and and he went here and there but as we sat 
he got very animated and and he got very impassioned about what we were discussing and and I felt like he gave us a very particular view of of life and philosophy so um uh it was very inspirational mm. and uh, and peculiar particular to him yeah um, the he was he was a different flavor than many of the other people that we that we interviewed. Yeah, the um, there's a clip of just Swami on on your website, which I think is is fantastic. I would recommend everyone to to see. Um, I, I wanted to know a little bit more uh, about you and your background and the decisions that you made before we we get more deeply into the film, which I want to talk about at, uh, at length, but. I um I was I was thinking about you as a 14, 16, 17 year old in Oklahoma. Um I wanted to know you know was did you feel at that time in your life looking at that young man Andrew that it was so clear that his his direction was a spiritual path with yoga or was there something else? I, I know that you studied magic did did you start studying magic at that time as well? I started when I was about 18, 17, 18, I guess, with magic. Mm. Um, I was just deeply fascinated. Um, I, I met a magician who had a great impact on me and showed me a few things. And I spent the next four or five years just deeply immersed in magic. And mm-hmm. and I, I, I came to realize that perception of people was deeply flawed, myself included, and that it can be manipulated, that our attention mm-hmm. can be manipulated. And what we interpret to be reality is a very fragile thing, actually. And uh, that's, that's what I love about magic still today, is that it demonstrates that in a very clear way. And somebody who's practiced some simple movement is capable of bringing us into a place of magic and mystery and and um and undoing the sort of normal laws that we live by and 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 you know it's a glimpse of that childlike wonder that we once had in our early years so so that's that's what i like about it 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 shows samskara in a way it, it's mm-hmm. you know, samskara is a more particular thing to to yoga but but it just shows the patterns of our thinking and uh, all of the assumptions that we have which can easily be transgressed um mm-hmm. but i i by the time i was 18 or so i pretty much thought of myself as a yoga person um i spent some time making native american flutes i um I did construction oh. with my father. My dad was a carpenter, and so I grew up around that and and did construction at various periods of my life. I built my house. I built this place that I'm sitting in right now. Um, wow. And I, I I love art and um, handcraft and I but but. At some point, you know, I realized everybody has to provide a service of some sort. So for me, um, I always thought yoga did more people did, did more good for people than 
building a house for them uh, because there's plenty of houses. Everybody will find one, whether you build it or not. And and even making a flute for someone can really enrich their life. But um, there's lots of flutes in the world. And, and <laughs> yoga teaches us something about how to enjoy our life and and stability of mind and emotional maturity that I, I just always thought was, well, this is my best offering, so I better cultivate it. And then mm-hmm. the, the other thing was body work. And, and I think most yoga people delve into some healing art form, whether that's, yeah. you know, there's, there's a lot of different directions you could go. But for me, um, Thai massage, chiropractic work, um, Various modalities of massage were were always um, just one of my great interests, and and something that later really formed part of my yoga approach and technique. I, I mm-hmm. decided at some point that it was much better to massage a tight muscle than just force this person to push into the pose. Like, like why mm-hmm. why not um, have people? push us instead of us pushing them or why, why not work on releasing a muscle instead of just pushing on this person's body to, to get deeper into a pose. So all of those things kind of coalesced uh, to, to help me form the approach that I have today. And are you referring to like using sort of active release techniques and adjustments Mm -hmm. and things like that? Yeah, I really like uh, isometric stretch and reciprocal inhibition and, you know, yoga therapy ideas, uh, which are infinite and like there's more stuff out there than you can ever learn in your life just about. But but in the effort to help people and in the effort to safely enable people to practice yoga, I, I think those are great tools. Did you, when you were in Hawaii with um, Cliff and David Williams and Danny Paradise, did you learn some bodywork techniques from them? I know David Williams always talks about how they would like, you know, do all these adjustments on each other after practicing and things like that. Did it, did that influence you at all? Very much. David used to adjust me every day when I, I, I lived with him and studied with him for a period of time. And I used to adjust his neck and he would adjust mine. And that's how I got comfortable with the adjustments. And I was really young. I was like 20 years old or 21. And I learned them and felt comfortable with them. And I, it wasn't until much later that I heard how dangerous they could be. But <laughs> yeah. by then, I, I sort of felt comfortable with it. And still today, I use those techniques. Um, I, I'm aware that adjusting someone's neck could be very, very dangerous, of course. And uh, I think amongst yoga practitioners, you're, you're more safe to, to do that kind mm. of thing. Yeah. But uh, well, no guarantee. <laughs> what, did, um, what did your mom think of your development at this time? You're 18, 19, 20 and going off into some uh, quirky stuff. What was her impression, do you think? My parents were always so supportive. You know, they stayed together until the end. And mm-hmm. um, 
watching my mom take care of my dad in the latter years was actually a great uh, inspiration. But my mother always supported me. And I remember the tearful goodbyes when, like, they knew I was leaving and they didn't know when I would come back. And right. they never tried to keep me. They never tried mm. to make me feel bad about going out into the world. And in fact, it was my father who told me to go travel at first and, and, and really inspired me and made me think that, oh, this is the great, amazing thing to go do. And, and I, I should go experience the world. And, and my mom was always right there with that. She, she never, you know, I always had the support of my parents. I, I, I didn't have any kind of, um, oh, you're wasting your life on yoga. Why don't you get a real job? What are you doing traveling around the world? I, I just didn't come from parents that had those views. They, they always thought I was doing something great. And, um, and looking back, I know that a lot of people didn't have that. And mm. um, I'm very grateful to my parents. And they're my first gurus, really, both of them. Yeah. <laughs> my mother's still alive, and uh, I try to have tea with her every week. And <laughs> 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 that's beautiful how would how would you describe her internal spiritual life what does that look like for her well they were always very tight and my mother still today practices yoga oh. um, it's, you know she's a liver transplant patient she has a hip replacement she she's not doing primary series i can assure you <laughs> but the idea that one should try to take care of one's body and have a, a physical practice that is done daily. That stuck. She still does it. Wow. Wow. Amazing. So for her, that's some very light stretches and maybe rolling around on a therapy ball and uh, doing a, a collection of things that she feels like help her mobility and, and that don't injure her. There was definitely a point where even – Surya Namaskar and some of the basic things that we think of as yoga and certainly in Ashtanga were no longer appropriate. And, um, you know, but yeah, she's a yogi and wow. a very spiritual person. And she's a, an inspiration to me. And she's always been very supportive of what wow. I do. Fantastic. Incredible. Gosh. Um, I guess, speaking of which, how did you even end up? In India, in the first place, I think I'd heard that Danny Paradise had convinced you to go. Can you talk about that at all and what it was like? Yeah, to that was that was a turning point. I was in Hawaii and I was doing construction work on the Big Island with some very rough dudes who were siding, putting siding on condominiums. And I went over to Danny's workshop in Kauai and. I just couldn't believe his life. You know, he's this free guy. He was with this amazing Finnish girl, Margareta at the time and traveling all over the world. And I just thought, oh my gosh, I want to be like this guy. Um, and he invited me to go with him and Margareta to Malaysia. And then they were going to go to India and to Mysore. Mm -hmm. And Danny really taught me about traveling and how to keep oneself together somewhat as, as you travel. But more than that, he inspired me with the lifestyle of a traveling yogi. 
I saw mm-hmm. that I was 17, 18, and I thought, I want to do that. I do not see a better life out there. All these career people, whatever. I want to travel. <laughs> um, so, mm-hmm. so he was really a big inspiration uh, for me in 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 freedom and and mm-hmm. the idea that if you practice yoga and you keep your life together and your head together and your body fit, that you could go anywhere in the world and you would have a kind of protection and a kind of magnetism that would bring whatever you needed and that you might have some hard times and whatever but but yoga was a great protection and and i actually spent the next like 10 or 15 years proving that to myself by traveling repeatedly i would come home and earn money and go back and um and i i would spend as long as i could out traveling which was Mm. what i loved the most and I had no shoes and no ticket home and I was wearing a top hat and doing magic tricks on the street. And, you know, when you're, when you're a kid and you're like 21, people don't necessarily take you seriously as a yoga teacher. It's tricky for a 20 year old to teach a 40 year old yoga. I mean, Mm -hmm. perhaps you could teach some asanas and and they might think, well, you're a wonderful asana practitioner, but you are a kid. Don't tell me how to live my life. (laughs) But I could do the magic (laughs) and I could could definitely create these illusions and and, and also body work. I I could help people with their injuries and, and that. I was really about doing whatever I could to make it from place to place. And, and when the money ran out, I would go home. And, yeah. But I did that over and over again until I knew I didn't have to go home anymore. And I mm-hmm. knew that I could stay as long as I wanted out in the world. And I, I considered that to be my education. That mm-hmm. was my primary education was how can I be free and move around this world and do what I want. Mm-hmm. And you know, I left school in the eighth grade. And mm-hmm. so I actually have no academic education other than my study of yoga scriptures. And well, I, I study many things. I, I love to learn and I love to take in new information and since covid of course i'm studying video and i'm studying photography and sound and broadcasting (laughs) and here we are on the computer and uh, like so many things whatever i need to know i learn from mostly google and youtube but Mm. but i learned to love learning Mm. and when when i was in public school i didn't love learning Mm. I, i was just absorbing information to get grades that would satisfy mm-hmm. my parents and teachers and so on and um that wasn't really learning for me mm-hmm. so so being in the world and watching how the world responded to me as a person and how my yoga practice had a direct bearing on that really convinced me firsthand in in my own mind very clearly that discipline and yogic practices and changing our mind and heart on the inside has a stronger bearing on the outcome of our life 
than the material circumstances around us, which are in a constant state of fluctuation. So mm. that, that was my training ground. The whole world was my training ground. And I screwed up sometimes. <laughs> I had some good times. I had some bad times. I, I had all kinds of things happen to me. But, but my primary education was just moving in the world and, and seeing different cultures and, and being, being alone in the world. And um, I wouldn't trade that. That was a good That's- move for me. It's such a powerful point that like, you know, because sometimes Russell and I, you know, lament, you know, wasting our our 20s and our 30s, you know, spending all our money traveling and going to Mysore and practicing yoga. And, you know, we were on the road. Yeah. Being on the road. We didn't have a real job. You know, we didn't save up any money or buy a house or, you know, (laughs) and um, but it's such a powerful point that all of that that inner work that you do actually in some ways gives you a strength that and a knowing and and something that's almost ineffable that you don't get from just like building up external you know riches like a house or a job or a RSP or an IRA whatever they're called in America the Irish army <laughs> That's what they call us. What is it called? The Irish Republican Army. No, those other things. It's like a savings fund, something like yeah. this. Yeah. Yeah, but like you, you develop the the knowledge in a sense of that you're beyond just this body, and and also that you you can learn and you can do new things and you can, you know, have skills, develop skills that you don't have. It's interesting because you you've done it right physically. You've moved your body in ways that you thought was impossible, and then right. your mind's also changed, and and so it gives you a, a knowingness that you can kind of do anything you want if you apply yourself. Right? <laughs> I agree. I agree. The ability to concentrate and and the belief in oneself, and and I don't think that everybody needs to. I don't know, throw away their career and become a yoga hippie and travel the world. That's not necessarily everyone's dharma, but I, well, I'm just, I I think of a, of a, of a verse that my, my Acharya taught me um, about this. Aishwarya Tatna Bhagavad Charanatinam. This Aishwarya is the person who wants wealth. They either have, had wealth and lost it, or they've just always been poor and they want it. And yoga can give you that, actually. These people are the people who just want to get it together, you know. And discipline can create wealth if mm. that is our goal. And then the next one, the Aksharya, is this person who wants to realize their self. And this self-realization is a very important yoga approach and like buddhism teaches that but Danjali really is self-realization and and, and this but bhagavad charanatinam these guys are about god realization that is the bhakti thing and um i don't think that there's one right way and 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 perhaps all of those points have to be met in our spiritual journey if we are ragged and poor and have no money we're walking down the road 
in the dark, no place to stay, no food to eat. Will you be happy? Will you be meditating? Will you be, uh, you know, jazzed on your yoga practice? Probably not. <laughs> you know, you'll be freaked out and uncomfortable. So, so like material uh, stability is okay. And, and it took me a while to figure that one out. But but uh, I, I don't fault anyone for um, their pursuit of material well-being. And, but I think that there's a lot more to life than that. And that self-realization is really the next step that we have to realize, you know, we came into this world with nothing. You can't take any of it with you. You're here just for a few decades. What is it that you really want from your life? What is it that's really important? And disciplines like yoga inspire us to look inside and begin to take our, our directive from inside. It is soul education. And that realization of the self is a really important step. And you don't get that if you're completely obsessed with the external world and, and uh, what other people think and how much money you've got and what kind of car you drive, etc. But then this, you know, God realization not everybody likes the word God and not everybody is, you know, a lot of us really hate organized religion and even the idea of God is, you know, offensive to some people. I don't push it, but there is an interconnectedness. Ishvara Pranidhana is part of the yoga and people can have their own relationship with God. But for me, those three things are, are a, a continuum and mm-hmm. and just you know get it together a bit realize <laughs> you are an amazing person and you have a lot of potential and then realize that we're part of something much greater than us and and learn to be in harmony with that and if you want to call it buddha or krishna or jesus christ or if you just hate religion and want to just call it the cosmos or whatever i don't care what anyone believes i'm I just think that we should uh, have those deep thoughts and explore spiritual practice for for ourselves, really. Harmony and I made some more conservative Orthodox choices when we arrived in Mysore. Like you go to Patabi Joyce, you study with him, and that's what you do, and you don't go anywhere else. Uh Uh-huh. Ever. (laughs) (laughs) You were much more expansive in your research and your study, and I and I Forgive me if if I'm wrong, but I have an idea about you that you went to, in 1990, super early for people in our generation. You went to study in Mysore. You went to study with, with Sri K. Patavi Joyce, uh, maybe on the, the council of Danny Paradise. I'm not sure. But then you went across the street and you went to BNS Iyengar and practiced with him instead. Which just seems wholly uh, <laughs> unorthodox. I, it's it's unthinkable to 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 us. So how did that happen? Well, I'll I'll, I'll tell you. You know, I, I was there for three months when I w- and I was eighteen years old, and and I studied with Patabi Joyce, and and I learned so much, and and it, it you know. I, I loved that experience, and and I have great reverence for his teachings. Um, 
But I saw him doing things with women that were disturbing to me. And, and you know, and I, I don't want to go off into all the, the shock and horror and slander and all that stuff. And, and, and I respect the man. But all of the really guru, foot-kissing, very devoted stuff, I, I never could quite accept that. Mm. And I went around talking about it for a while. And 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 I realized that I was alienating people. And I and I like I in the Mysore community, you were talking to people about it. Yeah, um, and but I mean that was all like in the early '90s, and everybody was like, "What do you mean he's great?" And this is great, and we're you know, and and I I don't want to you know, trash talk anybody's teacher. And I'm looking at these glowing, amazing practitioners who studied with him and thinking, well, you know, I respect you guys. I, I love you guys. I, I, I don't, uh, why bring you down? You know, it's like everybody can make their own decisions. So the reason I studied with BNS was that I came back a few years later and I was just a backpacker and I didn't have much money and I really couldn't afford to study with Batabi Joyce or I could afford, but my girlfriend couldn't. My my girlfriend at the time, I I, I didn't have enough like for both of us to do it. And so someone had, had met BNS and told me about it. And so I went to Parakalamat and, and there he was. And these just sparkly eyes and, and mocking smile. And, you know, what information can I get for you? And, you know, he's like, anything but, oh, please come and study with me. He's sort of like, what do you want, kid? And um, do you believe in God? You know, it was like first question. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so I, I spent some months with him and I just loved the guy. I just, mm-hmm. it, it wasn't that I didn't like Padabi Joyce or that I was like too holy to, or, or morally superior, nothing like that. I, in fact, if anything, Padabi Joyce was probably more structured and, and like he was a fantastic asana teacher and a really charismatic, beautiful man in, in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Flawed, of course, but like, I'm flawed too. Like, whatever. I, I don't, I'm not saying he was perfect. But but the reason I went with BNS was because I loved him and because mm-hmm. we would have these long philosophical talks. Mm-hmm. And he just – he had me in tears at times just talking about how important it is to be a righteous person and how mm-hmm. – Yoga should extend into your whole life, and and BNS spoke English well, yeah. and he he would make fun of me about things, and he would joke and laugh at me, and and he really shared so much, and and after that, when I when I could come back to Mysore, I just thought, you know what, I've got a real teacher here. And I don't care what everybody thinks. I don't care if I'm going to be as famous or as well-recognized or whatever. I just want to learn from this person. Mm-hmm. And so I I just did that. And, uh, you know, about seven or eight years ago, I I brought BNS Iyengar to Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. 
And he taught wow. in yoga studio. He lived with me for a month wow. in my house, here in this house. Um, <laughs> and we just had a, a real friendship. And he was way less famous. And there, there were times when it was just me and him there. Amazing. And, you know, he's talking about Vishishta Advaita philosophy. And he's talking about God and, and yoga and discipline and nature of the mind. And, you know, he took me through like the Shat Darshanas and, you know, so, so much yoga philosophy, stuff that I hadn't even read about. And that later I read in books and realized, oh my God, I got that like firsthand for real with jokes mm-hmm. and laughing and stories and, and from this guy. And, and that was priceless to me. So, mm-hmm. so that's why, and, and I, it's true. I, you know, I'm not invited to those strict shalas and, and, and probably my yoga career might've been better in some ways if I'd, if I'd, at least gone back and studied some with, with Batavi Joyce. And, and uh, you know, I always loved the people around him. Mm-hmm. Most, I mean, not the really crazy ones, but. but yeah. we <laughs> know always a, a few to. really crazy ones. <laughs> I, I yeah. wonder, I, we should probably just back up just a little bit, because I think a lot of our listeners may not even be aware that there was a fellow named BNS Iyengar. I wonder if you could. Different from BKS. I wonder if you could introduce him to the listeners and put him in the context of the of the Sri Tirmalai Krishnacharya lineage for us. Okay. BNS Iyengar, who actually has no blood relationship to BKS Iyengar, which is a very easy mix-up, um, was a student of Krishnamacharya in the early 1950s. He's a bit younger than Patabi Joyce. He spent three or four years studying with Krishnamacharya. And then Krishnamacharya left Mysore and went to, uh, to Chennai. Mm-hmm. And he, Iyengar continued to study with Patabi Joyce for another 13 or 14 years. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I remember very clearly Guruji BNS, which is what I call him, um, Going into Parakalamat, lighting incense, waving it in front of Patabi Joyce's picture, paying respect. So, so he did in fact learn from Patabi Joyce, and he teaches primary series. And some minor variances, but but it is primary. Mm-hmm. And as far as all my research is, has indicated. Patabi Joyce really is the author and originator of the primary series. Okay. He, he put the finishing touches on it, perhaps, and maybe the, the core of it came from Krishnamacharya. But Indians are like that. They, they will never claim originality for anything. It's always, you know, parampara, and by the grace of my teachers, I'm here teaching you this. And they, they don't say, I'm the proud innovator and I have a whole new yoga system and look at me. I, I have created this. They will never say that it's not their culture. So, so I think that's one of the big points of confusion in, in, you know, in the West, but. But even in the yoga sutras, it's at the yoga Nushasanam here. Finally, it's revealed not by me. You know, I'm not the or the origin, but is not the origin. It is revealed 
Yeah. Yeah, that's that's right. Um, there's a lot that can be said about that. But but anyway, to introduce uh, Guruji B.N.S. Iyengar, he was the little-known funny guy who taught at Parakala Mutt. And, you know, a mutt is a monastery. It's the same thing. And Krishnamacharya used to teach there. In fact, Krishnamacharya's father was once the head of Parakala Mutt. And that oh, really wow. was the uh, yoga place of Mysore in those days. And um, Patabi Joyce taught foreigners. Mm-hmm. But but BNS Iyengar taught all these Indians. And mm-hmm. I used to go in there and watch this community of people, uh, women in one room, men in the other, little kids, old chubby guys belching and, you know, with their Brahmin threads and kind of laughing and, and sharing, uh, chit-chatting here and there, doing different postures, young men doing amazing stuff, old men doing very soft poses. But there was a feeling of community that I, I watched there. And, and when you don't hear the language, you can't, I, I don't speak Kannada, uh, uh, and you just see a different layer of it and, and I, I thought that's really how yoga should be. It should be for everybody. It should be for old people, mm-hmm. young people, kids. We should make like a space for all of these people. And I got that from him. But anyway, mm-hmm. that, that, that's kind of who he is. He's 95 now or four. He's still with us. Mm-hmm. He's still with us and he still teaches on Zoom. He's teaching pranayama classes on Zoom and philosophy. Wow. And oh. our friends in Mysore are facilitating it. And uh, it, it, he's a priceless gem. Um, but he's always, you know, he's a strict teacher. And he's not so strict about the philosophy or uh, about the, like the postures and, and the, the order of things. He, he sometimes... After primary and intermediate series is even a bit more uh, just diffuse and, and different postures. He just used to walk in smiling and say, I'm going to get you one very difficult asana. And then he would show us something and we would try it. And he would laugh and we would laugh and we would try. And and um, so so he had a different approach. But what matters more to him is the sincerity of the person. And and he didn't push so much. He was always merciful, and and he would push. But but if you asked him not to and told him that it hurt you or that you had an injury, he, he would back right off. Hmm. And I appreciated that a great deal because I did get injured working with with Patabi Joyce, and um, I didn't like that very much. So, <laughs> yeah. no. um, but I, I love the intense practice, and I really respect those who've dedicated themselves to it. I, I don't, I, I, I don't try to say that it's better. But one of the interesting things that I, I discovered later in my research is that, you know, BNS Iyengar is definitely an Iyengar, and um, Iyengar comes from the word Iyengar. And uh, there, there were seventy-four different like ministers, sort of, who were appointed by the sage Ramanuja, who mm. was the 
originator of Vishishta Advaita philosophy. And Natsamuni so Ramanuja? Ramanuja, yeah. Yeah. Uh, those 74 guys are the 74 clans of the, they were the Iyengars. Mm. So each of the, each of those 74 has a family lineage. Krishnamacharya is an Iyengar, was an Iyengar. And, and they, they just, they follow that particular philosophy. And so I didn't know that. Um, but, but it became clear to me that, that BNS Iyengar was linked to that, that parampara, that, that religion, mm-hmm. that, that philosophy. And so in my own exploration of it, I, I wanted to know what are the spiritual practices and the worldviews of these people who gave us this asana practice? That's very important to me. Mm-hmm. And especially coming from a you know a religious background, a Christian background, and a lot of ministries, of course, I I just wanted to know, well, what's the rest of this, guys? We you know we're mm-hmm. we're better at the asanas than you are, really. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> what about life? And what about death? And what about like where do we go after asanas? And 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 I. And, and, and they're defensive about the history. Like, like you, you can't just go in there and do some asanas and say, so tell me everything. Like, how do you know what you know? And, and how, do, how old right. is all this? Like, it, it, that's very touchy. But it is allowed to be interested in those things. And, and with the right approach, they, they will start to open up and, and talk to you about that. Um, so... It all sort of culminated in Guruji BNS visiting me in Oklahoma and staying for a month with me. And then I started asking him, "Could could I could I video you talking about yeah. philosophy?" Yeah, and it, good question. This guy's not going to be around forever. Mm-hmm. And what, what about when he dies? And and like, is all that just going to be gone? Uh, let, let's document this. So he said no, and that he didn't want to. Um, and then I kept after him. And he finally, on his 90th birthday, he said, okay. A- and I gathered up some friends. One was a videographer. They were all students of mine. We got tickets, bought some equipment. And then he changed his mind and said, you know what? Forget it. I don't want to. It's like, I don't want you poking into my life. And and it's really about the yoga. And don't don't focus on me personally. I'm not interested in that. Self-promotion was never his thing. Still isn't. And so we were really kind of SOL. And um, we decided to go anyway because we we never know if we're going to see him again, right? Like Mm. he could pass. And so... So we went, and because he refused to do it, we started looking for other people to interview. Ah, okay. Cool. And because we were students of his, and because his his assistant, Kanchan Mala, knew everybody. And Kanchan actually, her family has always been advisors to the, the royalty. And that, In the same way you know, that uh, Jayashree might have been, her family. Yes, yes, and her husband, her, right, her husband, Simha, yeah. yeah. Well, she has 
her brother Narasimhan and her husband Narasimhan. Yes. Yes, I I meant the I meant the the her husband actually gave me a tour of the palace once. So I yeah. did mean her husband Narasimha, not her boyfriend Narasimha. Oh, <laughs> cousin. Oh, sorry. Forgive me. I didn't say that out loud. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, there it's it's peculiar, peculiar of course her two Narasimha. Um, yeah. But yeah. what a brilliant man he is, M.G. Narasimhan. Yes. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. He was also well, in the documentary and, and amazing. Yes, yes. So we started getting opportunities to, to talk to some other scholars. And there was a very pivotal moment where we went to see Basham Iyengar, who was the principal of the Maharaja's college. Okay. And I thought it would be some starchy white collar guy, you know, Indian principal. I, I didn't really know, but he's a swami and he wears orange and um, he was doing puja. Mm-hmm. And he asked me to pour ghee on a fire, which wow. I did. It was a very crowded, clustery, hot, hectic Indian environment. And so I poured ghee on the fire and a deity moved across a bowl of water. There were these little floating deities, little little naga things, and uh, it moved. And so, because it moved, he like clapped his chest and said something in Sanskrit, and that was it. Based on that, we were given access to the Maharaja's college, to all the professors, to their archives, to their text, etc. That's how nice relationships wow. actually happened. It was because this thing that that happened you also somehow got access to the queen of 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 mysore of uh go of karnataka well that was a another trick um oh, okay. it, it turns out that the queen's nephew uh, a, a very good friend um arun urs is also a student of bns and, oh, and nice. <laughs> so because of conscience, great uh, diplomacy, and because we were kind of guru buys with the, the nephew, mm-hmm. we almost didn't get in, but in the end we did. And the queen kind of, she's a very soft-spoken woman, and she <laughs> kind of didn't want to talk to us. But I, I was able to I just, I just said, well, look, your family gave this great gift to the world, and and I know that you know, even though you may not practice yoga per se, you you can speak about your family's contribution. And on those grounds, she did uh, talk to us about yoga and about her her family's contribution to it. Mm. So, because the the Vodayars brought Krishnacharya into the palace to teach yoga, to teach Ashtanga yoga. Right. Yeah. And so Krishnamacharya is hailed as the father of modern yoga. Mm-hmm. And and uh, rightfully so in a sense, but actually Nalwadi Krishnaraj Wadyar might more appropriately be called the father of modern yoga because he hired Krishnamacharya. <laughs> Because he told him that he had to teach all the castes right. and, and that it should be available to everyone in the community and that it should be taught to women, which mm-hmm. was taboo in those days. And so, for, so, for example, um, 
uh, what's her name? Indra Devi. Indra Devi, who is a you know a Russian emigre, uh, Eugenie Peterson, also mm-hmm. was taught by Krishnacharya, which I was. I can't imagine anything more shocking at that time that she was invited to study. Well, I, I believe, as the story goes, and you probably heard the same, that, that he didn't want to teach her. Because, <laughs> and he's not really supposed to come within 12 inches of a woman, much less yeah. touch her. And, and it was, all you know, this orthodox Brahmanism. So um, it was the king who said, no, no, you must and you will. and. And I, I don't feel like the Wadyars have the recognition that they should have for mm-hmm. the immense contribution that they have made to modern yoga. Mm-hmm. And they, they're not in a hurry to jump up there and accept that, or they're not looking for that recognition, but they really did do that, especially mm-hmm. Wadi Krishnaj Wadyar. Um, but, but they it's have an important... It's it's an important family. I mean, they they built the dam. They created uh, running water. They created the uh, electric lights in the city. It was the first university to accept women, based on their contribution. I mean, they're, it's an incredibly progressive uh, royal family. Very, and Nawadi was was a, a very special guy. But his father also was of that same mentality, and. The Saraswati Library was compiled by them. They had the idea to collect text from all the different darshanas in all, all the different, you know, because there's there's Dvaita, Advaita, and Vishishta Advaita. Mm-hmm. And rather than choosing one, they said, no, 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 let's let's have all the text in all three of those views. Mm-hmm. And and so that was already going on. A long time before Krishnamacharya came on the scene, and they really were wonderful stewards of their community, and and still today they're very loved and respected by their community. Wow. And I, you know, that that's not generally known very well in the yoga world, to my knowledge. Maybe more now than before. But what um, I found really interesting when we watched your documentary is the, um, you know. Because there was such a debate, maybe several years back now, but about when Yoga Body came out, Mark Singleton's book, and it sort of pointing to the fact that, you know, these Danish gymnastics were going on in the Mysore Palace at the same time the yoga classes were going on. No, no, no up, up north in um, the other... Oh, uh, in Varanasi? Yeah, that was um, Krishnacharya taking a trip up north. And that those Danish gymnastics were being taught there. Oh, up north, okay. And, you know, at the same I time, they were also in the palace. I that was not my understanding. Anyway, <laughs> maybe it was. But that he Ooh. sort of took this this yoga from the Danish gymnastics, and and it was so beautiful to hear all these like um, very steeped in in Indian tradition and history and philosophy, all sort of saying like. No, this has actually been happening all over India for a long, long time. The, <laughs> like the, the Kavayadam is where that was being taught. Right. Well, okay. This, you, you know, I, I, I know Mark personally, and um, of course, 
don't necessarily agree on everything, but I have great respect for his scholarship and his colleagues. And um, um, if it hadn't been for that book, the the people we interviewed might have had much less to say to us. Ah. They were pissed off about that mm. book. I thought so. And, and, and when we started- That was started a feeling asking, we had, yeah. It, this was a standard question that I asked in all the interviews that I could. I didn't get around to that with Cave Swami, for instance, because Cave Swami is Cave Swami. But, <laughs> but the, those who would let me ask questions, I put it right to them about how do you feel about the idea of foreign influence in the yoga? And of course, all of them unanimously said nonsense. Um, and now, now that's a tricky question because the context of modern yoga is modern. Yeah. And, and the idea that you could stop off on the way home from the office and take a yoga class, it's like 50 years old. It's so right. modern. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. It wasn't and, even around when you were young. <laughs> So, so what I what I say these days, and 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 you know, it's an ongoing scholarly debate, and and, and new information arises that that can reshape our thinking, and to act like we just know it all for sure is is not right. Um, Mark hung out with Jayashri and Narasimhan and. T.R.S. Sharma and and uh, uh, some others too, and man, did he burn them when he published that book? <laughs> they were so upset wow. by it. It was really like you know, there's still Sharma, not as much, but Narasimhan, he he he's not okay with it. Yeah. So, um, the best I can say about that, I believe yoga is ancient. What we find when we look back if we're looking through the lens of authenticity for yoga practice today, there are 10 chapters in the Rig Veda devoted to Surya and Surya Namaskar is mentioned there. The rituals and mantras around Surya are there. Now, the idea that you should greet the rising sun with certain mantras and certain geometrical shapes with your body and that you should prostrate to the rising sun. This is really old and documentably goes back to the earliest text that that we have about yoga. And that's just when it started being written down. Probably it goes back, no, no one can say. So Surya Namaskar, as we know it, inhale, raise your arms, exhale down, inhale, look up, exhale, jump back. It is modern. It's not, you know, but the one like Sivananda people do, you know, where mm-hmm. you step back with one foot and you do, you know, Ashtasana. Yeah. And now that's 12 movements and there are 12 Surya mantras. And Sashtanga Namaskara is this bowing, this ritual bowing. And that is the basis of vinyasa. Mm-hmm. And, and vinyasa is a modern word. Vishesha nyasa to to place something in a particular way. It was Krishnamacharya's mm-hmm. word. It doesn't appear in ancient text. Nyasa appears, but not Vishesha nyasa, not vinyasa. Mm-hmm. 
And Krishnamacharya comes from Vishishta Advaita. And in Vishishta Advaita, the sun is the primary icon for Narayana, the primary icon for God. They have an ancient ritual of Surya worship and, and sun worship and ancient culture around that. And so Ashtanga Vinyasa Yoga is really just a bunch of postures stuck together with Surya Namaskar. And yeah, yeah he innovated. And of course, they'll never say that they innovate. They, they just fit <laughs> yoga to the circumstance of the time. And the king told Krishnamacharya to create this badass yoga that would show how cool yoga was and elevate India's status in the world. Well, he did. What did he use? He used Surya Namaskar. He used, you know, his culture. And to say that the culture of Surya Namaskar is elsewhere from India is just not right. Now, are there other styles of exercise that that use push-ups and use something where you raise your arms and jump back and do a push-up? Of course there are. And, and nobody owns the push-up. Um, That's right. That's what I felt <laughs> about reading Singletary, Singlet, Singleton's book is that there's something essentially – I don't want to really rag on him, but I feel like there's it's it's borderline. It's thank you. That's yes. really I didn't want to use the R word, but it's <laughs> ethnocentric to presume that Indi- that the Indian continent couldn't come up with gymnastics on their own as human beings. They no. can't learn how to flip or stand on their hands all on their own <laughs> without needing some. Euro trash coming in and teaching it to them. <laughs> Every fucking human people being, on, a human yeah, being on the planet been on their hands can stand on their like, hands and yeah, do a backflip forever, right? Anywhere on the planet, you're going to find people doing that. <laughs> that, that that's right. So, <laughs> ethnocentric. Mark has been attacked repeatedly for 10 or more years because of this book. The poor guy. I mean, yeah. really, oh, the I, poor guy. He's a, and, he's, a, he's a good guy. Yeah, don't, don't get well, me wrong. He is, and he believes what he wrote. And he, he, he's sincere in his own conclusions. I don't agree with his conclusions, but I respect his scholarship. Sure. Because, and, and everybody agreed with everything that he wrote in Yoga Body, except for at the end, <laughs> where he makes all of these extrapolations. Yeah. And so, so let it be, because, because he wrote that book, and it really shined a spotlight on the authenticity and origins of Ashtanga Yoga. And it cracked open the subject, and it mm. really played a role in, 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 in the Indian's sort of universally said, well, that's baloney, and here's why. Yeah. And we just happened to step in front of them at the right moment for that and got it all on film. Right. And yeah. they, but but still, like, there's a gulf of culture there, uh, and their scholarship is not the same. They, they don't look at life for, through the same lens. And so I don't like to disrespect anyone's hard work and uh, Mark Singleton is a superb scholar and he's played a role in the unfoldment of yoga I, I don't you know we, we had a very lovely discussion on on Skype 
some couple years ago, and and they showed my film at Soas University in London at one point. Oh, nice. And afterwards, and he is defensive, and of course, my film contradicts his his uh, work, and and you know maybe there's some some uh, intrepidation there, but but I, I don't go around saying bad stuff about him or anybody else if I can help it, and the but the thing is. Surya Namaskar is the oldest element in modern yoga. And, of course, it's changed here and there. there there's no hard and set thing. Like, like you go to one region and you might see something a little different. But the Brahmanical rituals, Sandhyavananda, and the mantras, that stuff has not changed. It's mm-hmm. very consistent. And it one, came out of that. One day I was I was in the Shala and Arshara um, Joyce, um, spoke up and said, you know, actually, uh, Patabi Joyce invented Surya Namaskar. <laughs> and we all looked at him and like, <laughs> and so I thought there was a parampara here. I thought you were trying to instill in us this notion that this went back centuries and now you're telling us that Patabi Joyce invented Okay. I told Manju that. I said, Manju, I heard this story, um, Patabi Joyce, Manju Patabi Joyce. I heard, I told Manju, like, you know, you heard this. It's like, Sharat said that? That's crazy. There's, there's, no, there's no way my father invented Surya Namaskar. It goes back, you know, centuries. Like, and probably talking about the the Shivananda one that you mentioned. I thought um, uh, to that subject, and I, I'd be happy if you could if you could speak to it. But um, Manju also told me this wonderful story about you know meeting David Williams out in Pondicherry, and of course Manju is in your documentary as well. And I'd love I'd love to hear more interaction with him. One thing that he did that I, is super interesting and I think would relates to the kind of um, the kind of thing that you do, Andrew. <laughs> he told us that he told me that what he used to do, we were in Australia together teaching and, and he told me that he used that he used to take this leaf and chew it, which would numb the inside of his mouth and then chew glass when he was doing his performances. Uh, of yoga and then he would spit out the bloody glass and like look i'm a yogi and so there's this tension there between being a performative like fakir like a performative magician but then also actually he has some discipline to him which is extraordinary as ashtanga practice and it, it kind of reminded me of um of david blaine you know <laughs> who does like real card tricks at the same time, also taught him taught himself how to hold his breath for eight minutes, which is not a trick, you know. And I, I wondered if you could talk about that that tension at all, or, or any of that between discipline and magic. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's an interesting subject, and, and of course, I've, I've looked into this. But there there are two sort of streams of yoga culture. Hatha yogis were freaks. They, they were really like the punks of ancient India. And they did all this kind of stuff, this, this you know, pulling taxis with their penis and chewing glass and laying on beds of nails and, and just these extreme radical things. And, and, and some of them were famously like extremely radical, lewd and vulgar and, you know, defecating in public, having sex in public, this kind of radical stuff. So they were respected, but feared and reviled. 
and, and ashes of the dead, dreadlocks to the yeah. ground, left-hand path, all kinds as strong as possible. This vibe, mm-hmm. but they were the ones that did the postures and that did hatha yoga and the breathing stuff. And but it was the South Indian Brahmins and others, but 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 certainly in, in the case of Mysore. It was these Brahmins who formatted yoga in a way that that the world could understand it and and could relate to it. And Brahmins are not Hatha yogis, uh, usually. They're cultured, they're educated, they're extremely disciplined, and uh, they're the cleanest of the clean, as we know. So they're the ones that had the insight, who spoke English, who could relate and understand Western culture more than chillum-smoking dreadlocked sadhus, um, mm. and, and communicate yoga, and had the insight to see it as physical discipline, as therapy, as healing, and, and as a step in Patanjali's Eightfold Path. So really... They're the ones that could communicate it. And they took out some stuff like Vajrali Mudra and, uh, y- you know, the, these very radical ascetic practices. Drawing and, mercury up the urethra. Yeah. Exactly. Um, mm. You know, drawing mercury up your urethra is, doesn't look that good on Instagram. Um, <laughs> That's how I was actually uh, cut off of my Instagram account the first time. <laughs> <laughs> that would do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and but there is, you know, like like well, I tell you, BNS Sayangar. I did a magic show years ago at Parakalamat, and I I did various things. I pulled a dove from my hat, and it flew out the window, and and you know he. But he he took me aside at one point and he said, damn that magic, don't do it. Because (laughs) they're scholars and they're respected people in society. And the fakirs on the street doing crazy stuff, eating glass and whatnot, are not. They're beggars. And they're very low in this societal scheme of things. So Mm. Guruji BNS, in his you know, 95-year-old, very traditional, orthodox kind of paradigm. He's like, don't do that crazy stuff. You make yoga look like a freak show. It, it, right, yeah. You know, well, Manju it does doing look- early in his career, well, he was just a kid from Mysore out in the world trying to make it. You know, yeah. he could do stuff with his body. Uh, and I never heard that story, but uh, I believe it. Yeah. yeah. And also like from a very poor family and and like you say, like a young kid who's just Punk like kid. out there, yeah, doing yoga and you know, traveling on his own and trying to make a buck. <laughs> but there's there's an element that to Krishmacharya who often I've heard was out on the street doing yoga demonstrations, you know. I think he had the other people do the demonstrations. I, I heard that he, he had done also, dem- yeah. demonstrations in the street that, that Batabi Joyce, when he was 12, had seen him do a demonstration on the street like a fakir. Mm. You know, there's, it's true. There's I've, a, heard this, I, I've heard stories like that too, and that he was like a strong man and, and he mm. had extraordinary abilities. And 
they were all very, very poor. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. um, it was a big deal to be, you know, hired by the king okay. and to be um, accepted into those higher circles of society. And prior to that, he did lots of stuff on the street. And, and, uh, and, you know, and then there's the other big story that I actually took out of the film because the Royal family asked me to, um, oh. but Krishnamacharya pushed everybody and, and he mm. was radical in his adjustments. And Patabi Joyce was not the only heavy adjuster. So, yeah. Patabi Joyce even said, my guru, very, very dangerous, dangerous man. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, he even said that to me at one point. I remember those words. Yes, and um, so there's a story that Krishnamacharya was teaching asanas to the king of Mysore, and at one point, you know, he was there for like thirty-five or twenty-five years. He was there for a long time, and and he got a bit overly confident. And at one point, he had the king in Pashimokanasana, and he pushed down on him with his foot on the back of his head. Oh, dear. That, and and somebody saw him do it. Ooh. And the, um, the king said, you know, my body is not a big deal, and it's okay. But on this head is the crown, and the crown represents all the people. Mm. And you hmm. put your foot on that. Mm-hmm. And, and, of course, you can't do that. So, oh so as the story goes, and this was told to me by more than one scholar, Krishnamacharya was actually kicked out. And oh, fired. he was fired. That's why he went back to Madras. He was fired. And it was a very, very tough time. But the royal family kept that secret. And they still today, they will not talk about it because they didn't want, at the time, they didn't want to tarnish his reputation. They they transferred him. You know, they they dismissed him. But they didn't want to, you know, the king liked him. And and they were old friends, but but he blew it. Yeah. And my, my purpose in bringing that up is that these adjustments have been problematic and disastrous for yoga teachers right from the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> we've oh. all we've all made a bad adjustment. I can, yeah. I can yeah. attest to that. Oh. Whoops! Wish I hadn't so, done that. Well, yeah, and, and and this culture of radical adjusting and pushing people beyond where they really want to be—that's mm-hmm. my reason for mentioning that. I, I don't, you know, I really, yeah. I have at, uh, utmost respect and reverence for the royal family. Uh, but, but the king said, you know what? Enough is enough, man. And <laughs> and they, but they protected him. They didn't want to. Uh, to disgrace him. And later on, of course, they had no idea in those days that he would become the father of modern yoga and be such a big mm-hmm. deal. And later on, yeah. they didn't want to 
have anybody know that they'd kicked him out because he's like a national treasure. Uh, and mm-hmm. uh, so, so that's sensitive information. But but I think that Ashtanga mm-hmm. teachers in particular could use a little precaution and just mm-hmm. to realize that, you know, if Krishnamacharya screwed up, so could you. Uh, yeah. and, you, you know, like yeah. this I- radical pushing, it, it's really hurt a lot of us at different times. Mm-hmm. So well, when uh, when Bikram called Shirley MacLaine a cottage cheese ass, <laughs> you know, there's a fine line, right? Because it made he was really like that was cool. It was like I, I want more more people to find know about this guy. He's really amazing. He just says what he means. <laughs> like there's a fine yeah. line, and then ten years later, you're fleeing the country because on a rape charge. There's um, <laughs> it's kind of yeah. You got to be you got to fall. Gonna know where the pride should... comes before the fall is the uh... <laughs> yeah that's exactly. very absent um, mm. and you know we all get empowered by this yoga and uh, we have the admiration of our students and our ego can go beyond its bounds and yeah. and I think just about every good teacher if you're really honest has had some humiliating experience along the way that that helped us to wise up and yes. um, <laughs> 100% right place, then, then hopefully that just makes you a better person and a better teacher and I, I don't um, well w- w- one of the big things that I think is missing in yoga culture in modern yoga culture Patanjali said you know there's the three karanas there, there's clean the body that was the first one but he also said in the speech. And that was the first I, one. Um, I Nobody got that. We missed it. Um, <laughs> there are plenty of people who chant mantras in Vande Gurunam and blah, blah, blah. But they'll turn around and gossip like anything. Oh, my God. A bunch of backbiting, stabbing vipers. Jesus Christ. <laughs> with, with, the, with the Indians, and especially the Sanskrit scholars, who have this very sacred speech and they, you know, they spend their life cultivating this vocal ability. What you say is like an arrow that goes out of your mouth. You can never call it back. It shapes your life. It shapes the world. It is so sacred. And Mm -hmm. if we're to cultivate our bodies and our minds, we have to cultivate the speech. And mostly foreign yoga practitioners never even thought about that we we just we're terrible and mm-hmm. and myself included i mean i'm i'm trying to retrain myself to behave um mm. but that's a big and anyway so so krishnamacharya actually did get kicked out for pushing too much and um so you said the cleanliness and, of the body the cleanliness of the speech and i'm assuming the next one is the cleanliness of the thoughts the mind, yeah, yeah. The mind, yeah. yeah. If you, yeah. even if you're thinking really rotten things, try not to say them. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> what I'd like to, to go back to what Harmony asked before wait, about. Wait, wait, wait. Uh, I have okay. one more question. You, now you are going to interrupt yourself. Now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I've been thinking about this since you said it, and I'm just curious because you were talking about when you were practicing with BNS Iyengar. 
how the women would practice in one room oh, yeah. and the men would practice in another room. Was that just for the Indian ladies and Indian men or was it for Westerners as well? No, foreign devils can all practice together. Uh, but but okay. yeah, Indian <laughs> that's been my experience as a foreign devil that I could just do whatever yeah, I want. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we, we don't have the same taboos in the same uh, society. And so typically foreigners would practice in one room together and the Indian ladies would be in one, another room and the Indian men in the third room. That, that's how and the in, would the Indian ladies have a woman teacher teaching? No, no. He would Guruji still teach them. Laughing and singing songs to them. And he's such a character. <laughs> but uh, yes. Yeah. But he, he, he was always very respectful, you know. Yeah. Um, I, I love that uh, one of his main teachers now, you mentioned her name earlier, was is, is, a, is a, a woman. Um, uh, she's in your documentary, the woman that yeah, introduced you dancer, to the, uh, not the dancer, but the woman that introduced you to the um the royalty of of Mysore that woman oh Kanchan yeah Kanchan yeah 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 that, I thought that was uh, remarkable to see her uh as one of his main teachers if I have it right um well she's one of Guruji BNS's longtime uh students and and family friends she, she's not the teacher of BNS but she is no. a teacher who was trained by him. Yeah. Okay. And uh, very, very intelligent and persuasive, tenacious woman. Uh, um, and in all fairness, without Conchin, we would never have gotten the interviews that we got. She, she talked, she talked them all into it. And I don't even <laughs> know what she. It all went down in Canada. But it went from them shaking their heads like no, no, to smiling and being like okay, oh, and uh, very she, good. she <laughs> was she was instrumental, and bless her heart, wow. she did such a big thing for us. Wow. So okay, well let's ask the question. <laughs> you want me to? Ask? No, I'll ask it. So okay, so after all of your years traveling and going to all these different countries and you know, being homeless and realizing that you can live anywhere in the world and you could just keep going, keep traveling. What on earth, what on God's great earth <laughs> brought you back to Oklahoma where you're now living and a father of two children in three. a home? Well, three, but I'm assuming your oldest one Noble doesn't live Oklahoma. with you. And <laughs> your dad's, yeah. Well, I ask myself that sometimes, but um, my family karma, I, I am here to be with my children and my mother. And, um, you know, my wife is from Ukraine and we yeah, just as much business to be in Ukraine. Um, but which is a beautiful, I'm wonderful country. <laughs> the right place for me to be. And, and it, in the end, it doesn't matter where you're at. It just matters who you are and what you're doing uh, to me anyway. Um, so it's um it's a wonderful base and I don't like to be stuck here but uh it's it's I like the nature and I like mm. the seasons and I I like the 
woods that I grew up in as a kid. And uh, mm. so there's some great things about it and some very great friends that I've had for many years here. Your story so, kind of uh, reminds me of the alchemist a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Similar to mine, I ended up in my home, my hometown too, so <laughs> I can relate. One, one thing I wanted to, to share is, you know, some thoughts about Padam Padam. Mm. Oh, please. Because this is a big sticking point with sort of what, what one might call orthodox Ashtanga practitioners who feel that, you know, we, we're more traditional than other people by virtue of practicing a yogasanas <sighs> in a particular manner. And, and <laughs> so I asked about this a lot and, and um, trying to learn about Mysore Yoga Parampara. And so never in the history of India has Parampara meant simply practicing a sequence of postures in a particular order. Mm-hmm. Parampara, by definition, means that which is passed down from generation to generation. Okay. And it, it indicates that the practitioner learns something that is so potent that it will impact their offspring. Like your son who was sitting in Lotus at the dentist office. That's mm-hmm. Parampara. Mm-hmm. It is simply the grace and love which is passed down from teacher to student. Also, Parampara is in families. There's father to son. Um, and when, it, when you speak about Mysore Yoga Parampara to uh, elderly Sanskrit scholars, what they will say is that it starts with with Lakshmi and then Narayana, then the sage Namalva, who was a mystical poet who downloaded all of these, you know, he has all this Tamil poetry. And then these poems were lost for a period of time and they were revived by Natamuni. It's often called Natamuni Yoga Parampara. Mm. And then Natamuni's grandson, Yamunacharya. And then and Yamunacharya wrote the Gita Prasangaha, the, the 32 verse compil- uh, summary of the Bhagavad Gita. And then the next one was Ramanuja. And Ramanuja defeated his Acharya in debate and was exiled. He famously yelled the secret mantra from the roof of the of the ashram, and and his guru wanted to kill him, so he was exiled for twelve years. And where he was exiled was in Melkote, which is a village about an hour and a half away from yeah. Mysore. That is a very important place for the Iyengars. Yeah. And so Tadachar, my Acharya, who actually passed recently from COVID. Oh dear. Um, oh. He traces his family lineage all the way back to Ramanuja. And, wow. and I am actually working on a, on a tribute page to Tadachar. Uh, and, and, and I'm working through all the Acharyas that led back to Ramanuja and their stories and, and their various contributions. Um, but this Parampara really is about spirituality. And we are all, in my view, we're all part of a parampara. We're all, we all have a tremendous love for our teachers, and we're all, um, 
you know, unfolding that and teaching our students and our students feel that way towards us. And, and, and that is parampara. But what parampara is not is a pyramid scheme. <laughs> it, it's not, it was never meant to make money. It, it was really just meant about respect. And, and I feel like that's a misconception that we have. And, and that the way to show respect to the yoga tradition and to our, our teachers is to live what they taught and try sincerely to help humanity with yoga. And, and that's where the rubber meets the road. That's, where, that, that's what's important about the yoga. And it was given for free. Patabi Joyce learned for free. BKS Iyengar learned for free. They all learned for free. All of these great teachers learned completely free of charge. It was given by the community. Mm-hmm. And so to me, following Parampara means that as a, as a teacher, we, we should really be dedicated to helping society, to trying to relieve the suffering of humanity. And, and, and especially in the time of covid where we have such animosity and such division in mm-hmm. society. Nobody trusts anybody. Nobody wants to anybody breathing on them. It's been a very tough time for yoga people yeah. and everybody. And yeah. um, so, so this, this Mysore Yoga Parampara really is a very deep and a very beautiful thing. And, and that's been my passion is to try to learn as much as possible from these elderly scholars and to document it. That's why I created Mysore Yoga Traditions Archive, which is just all of these um, interviews from different people over the last years. That's why we're doing Mysore Yoga Conference, which is an online conference this year. Last year it was online. This year it will be online again. But, but usually we like it. The first two years we went there. And, and yeah. so we, we just try to bring a group of international people from wherever, anybody that wants and sit them down in front of these great scholars and just have a talk about life, about God, about death, about yoga, about what what they want to talk about, and and discuss that amongst the international yoga community, people from all different countries and cultures, and really have a conversation amongst cultures. And to me, that's what Parampara is about. It's, mm. it's just the... Uh, a deep love and connection with the practice and appreciation for the people who gave it to us. I love that. When is the uh, conference that you're holding? It's February 8th through 18th of 22. And can anyone attend? And where do they find the information out? (laughs) It's, um, I'm just about to launch the, the promo. Um, I'm updating the information, but it's absolutely, it's on Zoom. Okay. Everybody can participate. You, you get recordings at the end, and, um, and you can ask your questions directly to these scholars. Uh, Amazing. You know, we, we hope to have TRS Sharma. You, you know the famous picture of Krishnamacharya standing on the little boy, yeah. right? Yeah, that's Sharma. Well, that's the little boy. That little yeah. boy is... Ladies, and he has a brilliant mind, and and you know, like we can talk to him. You can ask him what mm. Christian Macharia taught, like because he was there. Yeah. And I just think that that's an important thing yeah. for us to to gain access to as much as possible. 
Yeah. If you haven't stood on someone in Kapotasana, I recommend it. <laughs> You're a big guy, Andrew, but I've tried it and it's 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 uh, worth the wait. <laughs> Have you tried it? Oh, that's great. I've done it I, also. No, Not to children, though. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> another little excerpt, and I think it's on... I think it's free on a sh- uh, on the the archive of of Sharma telling the story. Yeah, oh, wow, yeah. beautiful. And and one of the funny things he says is that there was a rumor amongst the yoga kids and you know in the shala that Krishnamacharya could actually levitate. And Sharma says he never saw him do it, but all of the kids were sure that Krishnamacharya could sort of float a little bit mm. and uh you know now whether that's true or not i don't know but what a beautiful story yeah and, you know guruji had that same adjustment in kapotasana when uh, really tabi joyce did? yeah and yeah. the story is that um is stood on him and gave a lecture while he was in kapotasana one day there is one stick there's stick on the ground yeah there was like a, a stick or some kind of like Root. Yeah, some some yes. post of some sort that embedded itself in his arm because he was there so long holding yeah. Krishnamacharya giving a I lecture. I have one scar. Yeah. In yes, I, he told me that story also, and I yeah. and I got a little insight from it from Manju. Ah. And mm. that's one of the little little things that people debate about. And I, okay. If you look at the picture of Krishnamacharya standing on the boy, yeah, yeah. Bobby Joyce is there and he's standing there. And if you yeah. look to the left, you can see him and, and he's so chiseled yeah, yeah. and so distinct. Yeah, yeah. And so, so in Breath of the Gods, somebody showed him the picture and said, Is that you? And he's like, Yeah, that's me. Oh, uh, yeah. And it is. I, but, I don't. But that was the only time that Krishmacharya did that. Yeah, it wasn't that in that picture that he was being stood on. It was a different time, but also it same adjustment. Been, it might have been Kurmasana, and that's why his arm was down. Oh, yeah, so maybe. Yeah. Anyway, it it's an odd place. When, it, when he mentions this forearm. Oh, no, but your forearm goes down onto yeah. the ground. That's true. It does. It does. <laughs> well, and he, anyhow, he was so proud of that time. Patabi Joyce yeah. told me that story too, and and you could just see how proud he was at, yeah. of, of that. And and you know he carried that scar with great reverence and affection for yeah. his, his for teacher. His and teacher. <laughs> and, and I just that, yeah, it's special. Know. I just want to say how uh, grateful I am that you came on and and told us your story and spent time with us. And I I really very strongly recommend to our listeners to to find your website. Uh, Wait, I think it's Ashtanga us? Yoga Studio. It is ashtangayogastudio.com. We have a pretty extensive online education section with Atanas. With philosophy, there's Mysore Yoga Traditions Archive, a pranayama course and Thai massage and various various things. We do continual teacher trainings. I, I just call it intensive trainings because I don't really like teacher trainings. I'm not mm. even sure if I'm qualified to be a teacher, much less anybody else. <laughs> but, um, you, we do it online and we do it locally. And so we have continual opportunities for people to uh, – participate live on Zoom and and then a very extensive recorded 
library for them to go through. And, and our final exam is given by Dr. M.A. Alwar from the Maharaja Sanskrit College. Wow. So if you want to know your Sanskrit stuff and you want to know Indian philosophy, you have to clear it with him before you graduate our program. Fantastic. <laughs> amazing. Everyone's afraid now. No one's going to enroll. <laughs> Just to say that I, I recommend that people enroll. And I also want to say that I'm so grateful to you for your, the service that you've done yeah. for our community. And it's, it's, it's really, it's, it's a mag, it's magnificent. And so thank you for what you've done. Yeah. Thank you thank so you much. Much for having me, and it's been a pleasure to talk to you today. It's our pleasure, and we're going to recommend everyone go to the conference also. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding Harmony with me, your host, Harmony Slater. You can find out more information on my website, harmonyslater.com, and I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Standing in eternity's shadow, watching the breaking waves, there's a heart.